Now let's turn to our passage today. It's Hebrews 4, verse 1 to 11. Once again, the passage for today is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all the works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some time to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Good morning, Renewal. Uh, what a blessed time that we get to enjoy worshiping our Lord together. I have the privilege of preaching the word for us this morning, and I'll be preaching our last sermon on rest uh, in our series. And next week, Pastor Bill will begin our new series uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, we believe that it will be a fitting book for us to study as we see what it looks like to be followers of God. Uh, in a time where much turmoil and difficulty is right in front of us, how to remain faithful. But as I uh, finish up this last uh, uh, sermon of, of this series, I want to give a quick overview of what we've done. And we studied and seen that rest is, is not as simple, but it's also more fulfilling uh, than what we initially thought it was. We saw that God is a God who rests. We saw that because God is a God who rests, he calls us as people to rest. So that rest is also remembering God's faithfulness in the past, and it allows us to think about rest now. Now today, we're going to study and see what rest means for us as we think about the future. And you may wonder, why are we spending so much time on this concept of rest and Partially true is the fact that, yes, we do need to rest, and yes, many of us deserve it. I know many of us work very, very hard in our jobs and our homes, but the Bible tells us it's much more than that, and we can't simply be told to rest. As the cat in the hat famously once said, uh, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how to have fun. And likewise with rest, it's good to have rest, but you have to know how to have rest, and how we know how to have rest is by seeing what God tells us about rest. And so specifically, we're going to talk about rest as it lies in the future. And when we think about the future, immediately I start to think, well, what about all the things that are going on in my life now, the present? And what we're going to see is 
that for Christians, the way we think about tomorrow, the way we do think about the future, that's how it impacts the way we live our lives today. As one famous Christian said, the most effective people are the ones who think about tomorrow. And Dick Lucas, another pastor, once said this, only the church will remind us of what is tomorrow. The world will only talk about what demands our attention in the present, but it's the church that says that there is a beginning and an end and that we are going somewhere. And so when we do think about the future, that can enable us to be effective in the way that we live our lives today, in our own personal lives, the lives around us, for our nation and for our world. So join me as we pray and ask the Lord uh, to really expound his truth to us as we study his word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do come to you, uh, many of us, um, disconnected, frazzled, anxious, concerned. But Lord, we pray that your truth, that it will not just be some lofty idea, but it will be sweet to our souls so that it can bring us to our knees to pray for the things going on in our lives, in our world then it can equip our hands to be a source of blessing to others. It can also motivate us to go from one place to another, telling, of, telling people of your love, telling people of your work, of your care for their lives. So Lord, we do pray that your word may empower us to be faithful as we live out your gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, uh, we're going to study this passage that Pastor David read for us in three points. The first, we're going to see that rest, first of all, is forward-pointing. Rest is forward-pointing. And then, off of that, we're going to see what rest points us from. And thirdly, what rest points us to. So rest is forward-pointing. We're going to see what it points us from and then what it points us to. So first, rest is forward-pointing. And as I go through this, I'm going to ask you all to have your Bibles ready. I'm going to be referring to these verses quite often. Now, one of the intricacies of this book, the book of Hebrews, it lies in the interplay between what's in the past and what's in the future. And our passage is one example of that when it talks about rest. Now, if you look closely, you'll see that the author of Hebrews presents this idea of rest first as something that has already arrived, something that we have, but also as something that is to come in the future. Look with me. I have some slides uh, here to look at these verses together. Look at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Rest is future. Verse 3, for we who have believed, past tense, perfect past tense to be exact, enter that rest. It's a past reality. Verse 6, since therefore rest remains for some to enter it. Future. Verse 9, there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for a future. And then verse 10 goes back to past. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his past reality. And so we can see that the author is going back and forth regarding rest as something in the past and in the present and to the future. And when we observe intricacies like these in Scripture, we can think, oh no, is the Hebrews author just simply a bad writer who can't stay consistent with his verb tenses? Or 
do we see it as him being intentional? That there's something to this back and forth from past, present reality to a future reality. What is he trying to communicate? What is it about rest that scripture is trying to change our understanding of what rest is? And it's telling us that rest is both something that has occurred, something that we have access to presently, but also it is future pointing. And we can even see that in the way that the early church celebrated the Sabbath. Before Jesus' resurrection, the Sabbath was always the seventh day of the week on a Saturday, marking the completion of that week, just like God rested on the seventh day from all his works. But after the resurrection, we see that the early church celebrates the Sabbath not on the seventh day, but on the first day, the day of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of a new reality, a new kingdom. And so, when the early church gathered in the book of Acts, they worshiped not on Saturday, but on Sundays, the first day of the week, to signify that their worship, their fellowship, is a taste of what's to come for all eternity, future pointing. You see, you and I, we naturally understand rest to be something that comes at the end of a strenuous activity, do we not? Likewise, the Sabbath on Sunday, we, we think of it as something that, that comes after we get through with the work week. And because we think like that, we associate rest with the past. To explain, take a commonly spoken statement such as, you know, I had a pretty productive week. I deserve a rest day. And so during your day of rest, you treat yourself. You, you buy something nice for yourself. Or, or you don't feel guilty spending your entire afternoon vegging out in front of the TV. And you see, on that rest day, what you do and how you feel is dependent on how hard you worked in the past. You see, our notion of rest is connected to our notion of what is in the past. Rest naturally for us inclines us to look back. But what our passage is doing is it's expanding our notion of rest to see it also as forward-pointing future. Now, there's nothing wrong with associating rest with the past, but to see rest as only as such can leave you very tired, disappointed and frustrated. Why? Because whatever rest you experience here on earth is all there is. And if all we have is the, is the past or the present, then we'll be left hugely disappointed unless rest also points to what's coming in the future. And only then will we not feel tired but energized, not disappointed but encouraged, not frustrated but hopeful. You know, let me explain how this works. One of the blessings I've had in my life uh, is the blessing of having friends in different parts of the world. And each group of friends I have, I associate them with a different stage of my life. And once in a while, I'll get to visit them. And when we get together, it's always bittersweet. You know, recently I got together with some friends in Korea uh, who I got to know uh, during our time doing language study in Taiwan. And it's bittersweet. It's sweet because that time together is really fun. We reminisce on our past experiences. You know, we begin a lot of sentences with, you know, do you remember that time when, and you fill in the blank. 
but towards the end of the night, it becomes bitter because we all know that our time together, our shared joys and laughter, they all lie in the past. And we can't look anywhere else for it except for the past. We have no future joy that's promised to us. You know, one of my friends is working at a very demanding job. He barely has time to get together. Another friend of mine just started a family, barely has time for himself. I, myself, live on the other side of the world. And even if we got together, it's not like we can replicate what we experienced in Taiwan. To put it simply, there is no future for us. Our friendship is based on the past, and that's bittersweet. Now, on the other hand, there's another Korean friend that I met in Korea. Her name is Joanna, and I'm very fond of her. And on our wedding day, it was anything but bittersweet because my time with her on that wedding day was not tied to the past. It wasn't a memorial service a service that celebrated the relationship we had up to that point. No, it was a commissioning service, celebrating the relationship that we are going to have in the future. And so that wedding day triggers in me the excitement of of limitless potential of what we're going to be doing and what we're going to be experiencing, our our arguments in Ikea, arguing over which furniture to buy and, and our frustrations together, trying to assemble that furniture together. You see... Rest is one of those things. Its effect is going to depend on how you look at it. If it's past only or it's also future, it's like airports. Airports can be the happiest place on earth or it can be the saddest place on earth. And it depends whether you're arriving into your loved one's life or you're leaving them. Rest is like that. And if my wedding day example wasn't romantic enough, Do you remember the movie Love Actually? You know, Love Actually, there are all of these mini stories, and in one of them, there's an Englishman Englishman named Jamie and a Portuguese woman named Aurelia. And Aurelia comes to Jamie's house every day to help clean and and, and help him uh, as he uh, writes his novels. Now, Jamie, the Englishman, he can't speak any Portuguese. And Aurelia, her English is very spotty at best. Now, They know that they can't understand each other. But in one of the scenes, Aurelia speaks in Portuguese asking, you'll drive me home later, yes? And she gestures gestures a driving motion. He drives her home every day. And he nods saying, yes, of course. But then he continues in English quietly saying this, it's my favorite time of day driving you. And to that she says, Aren't you dying to know what that means? It's Portuguese for, it's the saddest part of my day, leaving you. You see, rest is like that. If it's something that signifies you wrapping, wrapping up something, leaving something behind, If it's strictly tied to the past, you have nothing to look forward to. That's all you get, and that is the perfect setup for disappointment, is it not? 
How many times have you woken up from your sleep not feeling rested? How many times have you walked away from an experience with it not being all that it claimed to be? Or at best, you can only look back and try to savage the best moments from the past. But knowing that there's nothing waiting for you, it can be extremely disappointing. If rest is a completion of what you've done and it's only tied to what you've done, then the rest you experience here The promises of rest that we can get now, in the here and now, rest will be the saddest part of our days. But if rest is something more than that, and it also points forward, it points to something that awaits for you for all eternity with no limitations, no goodbyes, no restless nights, no anxieties, no tears. If there is something to look forward to, rest can be your favorite time of the week. So what are we doing every Sunday morning when we gather like this? What does the Sunday Sabbath do? Yes, it marks the completion of the week. It's a rest from our works, but it also points us to the beginning of a new one. And more importantly, it points us to the coming of an eternal rest that lies in the future. Our second point. Now let's see what rest points us from. We saw that it, all, it is future pointing, but what is it pointing us from? Now, when we look back in our passage, another interesting thing, interesting thing is the way that the author quotes Psalm 95. If you look, he quotes this psalm not once, not twice, but three times. If you look at verse 3, there's no slide. Look in your Bibles. Verse 3, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall now enter my rest. He's quoting Psalm 95. He repeats that quote in verse 5, and then quotes a different part of Psalm 95 in verse 7, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, to quote something three times means that there must be significance behind what he is quoting. So there will be value in us seeing what Psalm 95 is all about, and we see that Psalm 95, it's a psalm of praise. It begins by calling all the Israelites to come and sing to the Lord, to make a joyful noise to the rock of their salvation. Very similar to the call to worship that Pastor David led us in. But now in the midst of this praising in Psalm 95, there's a warning. And the warning is what the Hebrews author quotes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness like your father's. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And see, from this we know that this psalm, this psalm was given to the Israelites after their wilderness journey. If you think back with me uh, to the book of Exodus, during their Exodus journey, what happens? They escape from Egypt, escape from slavery, And after years of wandering in the wilderness, they finally arrive to the promised land, Canaan. And now we see that it's while they are residing in the promised land, in Canaan, they're called to praise God in this Psalm 95, the rock of their salvation. But while they still remain in Canaan, God says to them a warning. Do not harden your hearts, because if you do, you will not enter my rest. Now think with me, for the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, wandering around this desert, what would rest be to them? It's the promised land. 
It's rest from Egypt's oppressive rule. It's rest from having to live in the treacherous conditions of the Sinai Desert. It's rest from not having a home to finally having a home. But now what's interesting is that now the Israelites have entered the promised land. They're already residing in Canaan, but still God says, you are in danger of not entering my rest. Why? Because the promised land is not the final rest that God is referring to. That's what the Hebrews author is explaining here. Look with me, verse 8. For if Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What does that mean? It means that Canaan, the promised land, is not the ultimate rest that God is referring to. There is rest beyond Canaan. And it also means that the danger of Egypt, the danger of slavery is still very close and imminent. In fact, many of the Israelites are still enslaved and they shall not enter the rest that is beyond Canaan. How's that so? Consider this. What did God save Israel from? He saved them from slavery to Egypt, right? Being forced to work day and night. But it's not simply that they had to work, but the fact that they themselves could not enjoy the fruit of their labors. That's what slavery is. The toil and effort that they exert is for the benefit of Egypt. They couldn't flourish. Flourish. They were enslaved. Now God saves them from that. There is no more Egypt when they're in the promised land. But what still remains is this. It's the threat of slavery that enslaves them. Enslaves them in the way that they're enslaved to their work, to their merit. The way that they're enslaved is thinking that the merit of their works, the merit of what they do, how successful they are in life, is in thinking that that is what earns their freedom, not God. And that's what lies at the heart of their disobedience when the Israelites base their security in their military prowess or their national security or their strict observance to to religious practices. Or they see merit in their ethnic pride over Gentile nations. As soon as they displace their faith in God, the God who secures their freedom, and as soon as they replace it with with a merit-based kind of work that relies on themselves, they disobey and they are enslaved once again. And they will fail to enter God's rest. Does that sound familiar to us today? Are you enslaved to something? Preventing you from God's rest, from entering God's rest? What's Egypt to you? In Egypt, is how Tim Keller once puts it, it's like being enslaved to the materialistic society in which you live in. Egypt is like being a slave to the identity system of your society. It's like being enslaved to the identity that society demands of you. And let me add, perhaps it's being enslaved to your identity as a successful student a successful mother, a successful daughter, a a doctor, a successful Christian, being enslaved to the expectations that you feel like you need to live up to. You see, being enslaved to Egypt is, is operating and thinking like this. I need to do this 
so that I can secure that. And that kind of thinking stands in between us and God's rest. You know, John Gerstner once said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. It's you thinking that your merit earns value in your life, not Jesus. But brothers and sisters, there is a way to be free from Egypt. There is a way to enter God's eternal rest. And it's not our damnable good works because you can never enter it on your own. You're going to need someone to carry you into God's rest. Just as Joshua brought the Israelites into the promised land, Jesus promises to bring you into the promised kingdom of God, a rest that's given to you because Jesus says you no longer have to work to please others. You no longer have to work and be enslaved and thinking that you need to prove yourself to anyone, not even to yourself. Because the one who ultimately matters, the creator of the universe, is already convinced that you most certainly do matter. You no longer need to constantly wander in the wilderness wondering, going from one thing to the next, trying to live up to expectations because Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. You will find rest for your souls. Believe, not in your work, whether or not you think you deserve rest or not, but believe in Jesus' work on the cross. Believe in his work in his resurrection who lived up to the perfect expectations so that he can bring you into the rest that remains. And I know many, if not most, who are listening right now are Christians And I know that we base our Christian identity based on our past redemption from Egypt. Perhaps for you, sometime in your past, you remember when you genuinely experienced God's salvation and you think you're good. And again, you associate your rest from sin with the past. But here's the warning that this passage gives. Do not think that you entered God's rest simply based on what God has done in Egypt in your past because the sobering reality is we can still be enslaved we still have the mindset of egypt it's being ingrained in our in our thoughts and it happens when we think like this to ourselves every time we approach the sabbath for example thinking you know i deserve a break because i've had a productive week what am i i'm still enslaved to this merit-based reward system Every time I think that the spiritual outcome of my children is based on what I do as a father, I'm still being enslaved to Egypt. Or when I think that the quality of my work as a pastor, that's what secures my role as a pastor, that's still being enslaved. When we have a hard time resting in God, because we rather rest in ourselves, we are enslaved to Egypt. And to us, our passage says, today, today, Right now, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not brush off this warning and think that your Egypt in the past guarantees your rest for the future. We are still in danger. Jesus secured that rest, but we need to see and find our rest securely in Jesus' rest. And Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' gospel provides us, points us away from that, away from our Egypts. And it leads us to our third point because it points us to God. So far, we've seen that rest is forward-pointing. We've seen that rest points us 
from our enslavement to ourselves and to our work, now we're going to see what rest points us to. And it points us to our freedom that we have in God, God's presence. You know, what happens when we're enslaved to our work and our merit for our rest, you know, we'll end up seeing our Sabbaths in two different ways. You know, first, we may see Sunday as a catch-up day, simply a day that is different from Monday through Saturday. It's a day that's simply filled with different kinds of activity that you can't do or weren't able to do between Monday through Saturday. Judith Shulevitz, she writes in the New York Times, you know, that as recently as over 100 years ago, 125 years ago, she says, you would have been hard-pressed to find a museum or a library open on a Sunday. Stores would be closed. Activity seemed to cease. She remembers people lining up at the ATM on Friday to get the cash that they needed for the weekend. She says, now these Sundays, she writes, they've been replaced by the overscheduled Sunday, soccer Sunday, Little League Sunday, yoga class Sunday, catch up around the house Sunday. And she says, Americans still go to church, of course, but only in between chores, sporting events, and shopping expeditions. And she's not even Christian, she's Jewish, and she writes this. You see, the second way we see the Sabbath is by simply seeing it as a day to stop work. This doesn't sound wrong, does it? Isn't it supposed to be a day of rest from our work? The answer is yes. But if that's all that we see it as, then it's still seeing rest as tied to the path. And Judith, again, writes this. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working and rest is to not work. And she said that's wrong because it also depends what you are resting in. Now, as I thought about why these two commonly um, present thoughts are in us, I think it's because of this. I think it's because we tend to associate our, the Sabbath with ourselves. Whether you see it as a catch-up day or a day filled with activities, or if you see it as a day to simply rest from the hard week that you've had, rest becomes about us. But to view rest in that way is extremely limiting because it's never our rest because underneath saying something like that, our rest is this, is this assumption that we deserve that rest. You know, there are vestiges of Egypt still lying underneath that kind of thinking, thinking that the Sabbath is reserved for me to catch up on things or for me to recuperate, but that's not how God defines rest. You see, when Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 again and again, it says that it's not our rest, but God's rest. He says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, God's rest, he says. It's what Pastor Bill talked about a couple of weeks ago when God rested from his works. Our passage brings it up too. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now think about this. What does God do on that rest day, on that seventh day? Does he rest because he needed to spend that seventh day catching up on things he couldn't do? Monday through Saturday? Can you imagine on the Sabbath, God on Sunday going, oh man, I forgot to make birds. Let me do that real quick. (laughs) Or do you think God is saying, man, that was a rough week. I deserve some rest. So I'm going to enjoy it. No. God 
doesn't need rest. But what does he do? Why does he rest? He rests to see that everything that he had done was good. He blesses that day. He makes it holy. He makes it a day of enjoyment. It's a day where God himself basks in his glory. In other words, rest is about resting and basking in the presence of God. Psalm 95 comes into the picture again. Earlier I said that it's a psalm of praise that commands us to make a joyful noise to God, but it also continues saying, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving because that's what rest is. It points us to the presence of God. The one commentator writes, the Hebrews author, his purpose is to show that God calls the rest that is being offered my rest because it is the rest that he himself enjoys. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless unless it rests in you, O God. And yet, we disassociate rest from God and we associate it too much on our work. And that's why it may seem like our Sundays are so disconnected from God. If our rest on Sunday is totally tied to us and not God, then all Sunday is to us is a break from our work. But if rest is a forward-pointing reminder of the presence of God, then even our Monday through Saturdays become reminders, and they themselves become four-pointers to God's presence. It becomes a day to enjoy God, a day to bask in Him. Imagine with me that you're building a model car with your son. And it's a big model car, one that can fit uh, one or two people and you guys can drive it around. And it takes all week, it takes all week for you two to build it. And every day you with your son, you spend hours after work collecting parts, trying out this and that. Over the dinner table, you're talking to your son about to try this, what color to paint it this. You guys watch YouTube videos, and you guys work hard. Now, what's the son going to be thinking about all work, all week? He's going to be asking, Dad, when are we going to be able to test drive it? And time after time, the dad responds, on Sunday after we finish, we're going to be able to take it out for a ride. Now, knowing that, how do you think that transforms the work that the son does Monday through Saturday? Every time he puts the pieces together, every time he spends time with dad, looking at YouTube videos, arguing over the paint color, those days themselves lend themselves to to, to point forward to that Sunday where they can finally bask and enjoy the work that they had done. Likewise, if we see our Monday through Saturdays as days leading up to the basking of God's glory on Sunday and more importantly, all eternity, it's going to transform our work. It's going to transform our Sabbath. And Monday through Saturdays don't just become work days. They become days filled with hiccups of God's presence in your life that points to this full reality of an eternal presence with God, an eternal rest, an eternal basking with God. And we know that rest is earned, fully paid for, a rest that you can enjoy because of the fruit of Jesus' labors. So brothers and sisters, join with me today as we rest. Hear these words from this once famous hymn that says, Jesus, 
I am resting, resting in the joy of who you are. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thy art. And thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. Ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee. Resting neath thy smile, Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face, keep me ever trusting, resting with thy grace. Let us pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for living as if we are still enslaved to Egypt, thinking that there is value in what we do, not seeing the value that you place upon us because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we know we are all susceptible to want to go back to Egypt. But Lord, we want to enter your rest. A rest that is given to us today that says we do not have to live up to the expectations that we put for ourselves or society puts on ourselves because Jesus lived up to those perfect expectations. God, remind us day in, day out, and especially today, especially on the Sabbath, that there is an eternal rest where we can fully bask and enjoy you. We long for that day. In Christ's name we pray.